back to Alpi Parsha Podcast, your Torah po- portion podcast. Each week we will do a light dive into this week's Parsha, then we'll zoom in on a passage that catches our eye, and we'll connect it back to Judaism and our own lives. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Saleka, joined by... Aaron Rotenberg. Nice to be here with you, Paul. Good to be here with you, too. How are you doing these days? Uh, I'm good. Busy preparing for our Heart to Heart fundraiser, uh, which is happening in a couple of days, Building Heart, uh, which is a program that me and also my spouse Jenny work on. It's a encounter and dialogue program for teenagers in Israel, Jews and Palestinians uh, that come to camp for a few weeks and we bring a couple of alumni over and have a whole event that's uh, got lots of pieces that we're organizing. So that's keeping me busy. Uh, what's going on with you? I mean, that's great with the heart to heart stuff and definitely have to put that in the show notes so people can link up to it. Uh, for me, you know, just been a good work week. And, you know, I was just saying to James that, you know, cause we're buying our groceries on Sunday, we're going to be kosher for Passover starting on Sunday and then ending on the following Sunday, um, very, a little bit unhalachic, but certainly the spirit of the law, just because things have lined up that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going to get my yearly matzah lasagna in, as well as, Ooh. I'm such a sucker for a Swiss roll. So I do need that. You know what Swiss roll is? Like a jelly roll? I That used to be one of the treats that my mom would give me in my lunchbox, to like two Swiss rolls. But do you make it for Pesach? Is that the, or you buy it? I, I buy it. I, oh, okay. yeah. Although uh, I was listening on the Canadian Jewish news today that kosher for Passover cakes are the most expensive they've ever been. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's a specific sentence. The kosher for Passover cakes in Canada are the most expensive <laughs> they've ever been. Um, so hopefully I can make it up to, where do I go? Hermes, I think is probably where I go to get their... Mm-hmm. Swiss rolls when they come out, because it's just not the same as the factory made Swiss rolls. Mm. Like, because uh, one year I got from Loblaws, and we wish that we can get these kosher for Passover Swiss rolls from Loblaws at all. But Hashem, meaning thank God. Yes, thank God. Like, uh, I give thanks to God that this is the case. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about. Uh, and yes, Passover is just around the corner. And we're thinking, you know, maybe Aaron and I will try to find some time in our busy schedules to make some homemade matzah, which, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, is soft, right? I think it'll be pretty soft. I think we've hinted at this in previous episodes, um, that this is our longstanding desire to try this out. Uh, I tried a test run, and... Mine were like quasi soft, so we'll see how they turn out when we make them. <laughs> quasi soft made me made me think of a joke, but I won't go there. Um, we'll keep I don't know what you're thinking about. <laughs> so you know, this week I think we are in our second uh, Torah portion mm. or the third book of Moses. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. Called Sav. What does Sav mean? Because actually, mm. I don't. Know Sav means, uh, I'd say, like, command. 
it's related to the word for mitzvah, which can be translated as commandment. It has the same root or shoresh, also as we spoke about last week. As a few Hebrew letters that are the same, right? mitzvah means something that is commanded, and sav is the verb form where God is going to say command to, I think Moses, God tells Moses to command Aaron to do something in the first verse. So is it mitzvah, like it's of and from the commands? Mm. Like, is that how we're Sometimes saying it's Sometimes uh, No, I mean, that is a good, that's a nice drush or play on what it sounds like. Sometimes as you're alluding to, Paul, the mem prefix means from, but here it's just a kind of, I don't know if the word is conjugation, if it's a noun, but it's the way that nouns are formed sometimes has a mem before. Couldn't say why. Like there's Torah, which is teaching, and there's also mora, which is teacher. It's just a different kind of construction. Oh, but it's from the same root, you know. My, root. Yeah. my least favorite Hebrew prefix, I don't want to dwell on it too much. It's uh, oh, least. oh, shit. Which, like, I get <laughs> it now. I think it means that which or thus, right? Uh, like, yeah. It's something that's like continuing the action, but um, I'll tell you, like, it's, and it's not optional. Like, you have to say she if, 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 if the you... sentence is so constructed. If you want to say which or that. Or that which, which, which we that really which, English. Which, which. So why don't we jump into our one-minute summary. Uh, I think, is it you that goes first this time? It's me that goes first. Okay. I will time you. Let me know when you're ready. Three, two, right. one. Okay. This week's Parsha itself, we have some more laws around what temple, uh, not temple, tabernacle sacrifices involve. And then we get into some laws about the sacrifices that take place for the installation of the priests and that they have some specific things that happen there that involve like sprinkling of blood and putting water, uh, oil and blood together and putting blood on like the earlobe and thumb and big toe of the priests that are getting installed. Um, there's other things. That's all I remember. Under time. I love it. I think we're going to have a lot of that in uh, Leviticus. Uh, so I will do my one minute summary, but I almost feel like you need not time it because I might also go under. Uh, I'll time you anyway. Just just in case. Two, one. So in this passage, uh, we get instructions from Moses and Aaron about what to do with the priests. And there is a burnt altar that's burning all the time. I think it's an eternal flame. Don't quote me on it, but quote me if I'm right. And then there's some other things about offerings and then some stuff about Kohanim, the priests, and then Aaron and his sons are in the sanctuary for a week um, and they become official priests. End of story. Nice. Also under time, but good details. <laughs> I wonder if we need a, a different approach to the one-minute summaries 
You want a 30 seconds keep rolling with it. Leviticus? Oh, yeah, maybe we can <laughs> tighten it up even more. Um, but it just feels different giving these summaries because it's not, I feel like our, in Genesis and Exodus, it's more like remembering the parts of the story. And this is like remembering a list of rituals and laws, which is just a different thing. But maybe we'll You're saying it. we need not take it lightly. Let's try to remember as much of the rituals possible and do a true one minute summary, uh, not a gloss over. Well, I don't know that I was that. That's one way to take it. I was thinking maybe we could just like list out. I'm not sure what I was thinking. Like, it's just hard for me to remember. And maybe, well, maybe it's also just that I'm not writing notes. Maybe I could write notes for myself. But... If you want to be modern, it could be like listicle style, kind of like, here are the top 10 rituals that I pulled out from this. Duh, duh, duh. So like, uh, because my dad's 70th birthday on Sunday and we did, Mm. uh, I did a listicle, like top five things I learned from my dad. Um, And like, even though it was like, kind of, I mean, cheeky, because like, I was like, oh, it's like BuzzFeed. It's it's also an effective way to do things. And, you know. Mm. I feel like lists and acrostics are very Jewish, you know, so. Yeah, maybe I'll try that for next week because next week is Shmini, which means the eighth. So maybe I could do eight things I've learned from Shmini. Hmm. Shmini things from Shmini, you know. Shmini things from Shmini. But we'll see how it uh, plays out next week. Uh, and happy birthday to your dad. Thank you. Yes, he's very happy and then he actually had to do a speech that same day mm-hmm. about world war ii um we got him an e-bike which mm-hmm. is an electronic bike not like a, an online bike um because that's what you were thinking that's not what anyone would think but so uh and i tried it on the way over to bring it to his house and it was it really is great for as you get older um yeah yeah, I mean, just kind of harking back to our Parsha, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I have some talking points written down, but was there anything for you that jumped out that kind of caught your attention in terms of themes or ritual or kind of Jewish practice? Well, one thing that you mentioned, just to quote you, because you were correct, uh, there is that Eish Tamid, the et- well, sometimes translated as an eternal fire, but... I think actually what Tamid means in this case is uh, regularly tended to, right? That somebody's, right? Because it's not, the fire doesn't just last forever. Somebody needs to keep putting wood on the altar to make things happen, to keep the fire going continually. Um, But I think it's a cool ritual to have a continuously going fire. Uh, I was thinking about it a little bit when I was boiling down some sap. And then we spoke about my sugar shack last time, but I've done that again since we spoke. And right, you have to like keep the fire going and you need to like keep bringing wood and keep having a source for it and keep putting energy into it. I just feel like there's a nice, probably spiritual takeaway that if you want to keep your spiritual fire burning, it doesn't just like keep going on its own. It needs like continual work and input to keep that flame. So it's such a beautiful sentiment, you know. And I think this is kind of a good, almost challenge for our listeners, kind of like, a, I think people don't always realize there's often a symbol 
of the eternal flame in most synagogue sanctuaries mm-hmm. um or like an actual kind of light or fire that's happening i feel like i was at a synagogue recently it must have been the one in detroit where someone was like oh like great eternal flame it's like oh what a funny what a funny statement like oh great eternal flame that's yeah like um when i was younger and i guess you as an adult uh, I was in Scouts, and I remember for our graduation, we had to be in the woods for two days, which I got, I feel like they don't do that anymore, you know, but uh, the nine, that wasn't the 90s, I guess, it was the 2000s, early 2000s was a different time, um, but you have to keep, one of you has to stay up in shifts to keep the fire going, because if you're doing survivalism, it's very difficult to start a fire. So you have to keep the fire going all the time. Um, so for me, I was almost just thinking that maybe, you know, when synagogues were coming together, I think they came together even before the common era. There's some sort of synagogue-like thing. Like maybe just we needed fire there and people had to come together. Like you may have used the fire for different things. Like it's just like um, mm-hmm. the hearth of the home is also the hearth of the com- There's a hearth of the community. Yeah. Um, the communal flame. Yeah. And maybe one thing just to point out, there actually are two different things that are mentioned in the tabernacle. One is the Ishtamid that we read about, the eternal fire or the ongoing continual fire, as I'm trying to re-describe it, on the altar. But there also is the Nertamid, which is the continual like candle flame, which is you know, uh, based in oil. And I think that's what we're, <clears throat> that's more what we're mimicking in the synagogue, the near tamid. So I feel like it's probably not reasonable to think about a bonfire in the middle of a synagogue, but like a, a candle where somebody needs to go and keep replacing the oil uh, does seem more possible. Yeah, and we hear this word, I guess, every week, like lechad Ner. Mm-hmm near to meet like uh it's kind of fun when you realize you've been saying something uh it's funny too like um i used to be quite observant and when i know we already talked about the time i went to the synagogue but something did, did happen there that i forgot to mention last time was that there's some things i can't always shake from my uh previous observance and one thing is um and maybe you know this about me Aaron. i don't know but like sometimes i have a hard time repeating things <laughs> So when people are like lehad leknir, shell shabbat, I I I don't say it twice. So in our house we would say lehad leknir shell shabbat, but nobody does that except for like some people. So we went to the synagogue. James saying it the way I've taught him, and then he's like out of sequence. I'm like, oh no, like it's probably so confusing. Why he he doesn't know why he's saying it differently because I've like forced him to learn it in this more arcane way hmm. because I was used to not repeating words in a frivolous way. Frivolous. Well, from that perspective, you know? Yeah, I like it. This makes me think of, there's a Hasidic teaching that everybody should find one mitzvah that they really like and like really be a stickler. Like you don't have to be a stickler about everything, but they try to find one and be a stickler about that. And then if everybody chooses the one, like a mitzvah that's really dear then everybody's at least like really holding down like a part of this web of ways of connecting to the divine 
And I feel like it's cool that that's the, the one that you're, you feel drawn to of this not repeating sacred words, like let them stand in their holiness by not repeating them. And okay, so maybe it's throwing off your husband who's <laughs> not uh, aware of you being such a stickler on this and maybe not everybody is, but I think it's nice that you've, it's nice that we all have our idiosyncratic ways of approaching Judaism and everything gives like flavor and color. And I'm like, I'm also trying to get more into this idea that we don't all need to be saying the exact same words at the same time. And I'm thinking about it often in terms of like different names for God and using feminine God language. And it's okay if somebody says Melech HaOlam and somebody says Ruach HaOlam and we all are contributing to this poetry of understanding God and how to how to connect. So I like I like this a little bit cacophonous thing that may be a little bit off. It might throw us off, but I think we should get used to that being thrown off by like not being exactly in the same time, not having the exact same pacing of words, but we all come together. That's such a beautiful point. It kind of reminds me of how in early COVID days, I remember like so many synagogues when they did their first like Kabbalah Shabbat on Zoom, people don't realize, unlike Riverside FM, which we use for recording this, um, you can't speak at the same time as someone else on Zoom. So like, okay, let's all put on our mics and sing together. And it's so cacophonous. Um, I was like, oh, we didn't realize that this would happen. Um, But it's just, you know, that's what kind of reminds me of too, like that that experience we had with cacophony when we were... Everyone was trying Zoom Kabbalah Shabbat at the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. which uh, now I guess was three years ago, but feels like six years ago based on times passing. My laugh lines. Um, uh, are there any other talking points that you had that you wanted to bring up, Paul? Yeah, you know, I think we have to also look at a passage. Mm, yeah. Um, maybe if you want to look at in the Hebrew, and I'll do the English of line 34 from chapter 7. Um, do you want to do the Hebrew and I'll do it in English? Yeah. 734. Let me just... Okay. Here's what I've got from the Everett Fox translation. For the breast of the elevation offering and the thigh of the contribution... I take from the children of Israel from their sacrifices of Shalom and give them to Aharon the priest and to his sons as an allotment for the ages from the children of Israel. Oh, that's so interesting. My translation. Oh, sorry. You meant for me to do the Hebrew. Yeah, I was like, I know you can do English great, but uh... (laughs) Uh, I challenge you to do it now in Hebrew as well. I'll also do the Hebrew. Okay. Uh, 34, right? You know, um, so there's a few interesting things about this passage. I guess, first of all, like kind of talking about the Kohanim. I don't know, have we ever spoken about Kohens or priests in previous in depth? I don't know. Let's say a few words now. What is a Kohen or a priest? Is it like a priest that people imagine from TV? Depends what sort of TV you're watching. If you're watching. Well, 
it's very subversive but you know <laughs> uh it's not like a christian priest if that's what you might see on tv uh kohen comes from the verb i don't know lekahen. i'm not sure if i'm conjugating that right but it means to serve so it's somebody who's serving who has the specific role of serving in the tabernacle in the in the bible or the temple later on uh they're imagined as coming from the lineage of aaron who is imagined as the first priest and yeah they have a special special significant role and they don't they're not really supposed to do other things they're not the priests and the there's some connection and maybe overlap in various places with the levites which is the tribe and the priests who are a family potentially within the levites and they're like a non-land owning class and they just serve in the temple uh doing all these things that we're reading about they're like the original jews of the jews like not owning land and you know doing other stuff more service industry mm -hmm. um but this is so long ago and you know obviously we don't have moses around anymore do we still have cohen's there are people that still trace their lineage through and say oh we have kept <clears throat> the cohen lineage passes patrilineal patrilineally through the male relative unlike matrilineal which is one way of commonly understanding jewish uh lineage being passed down for example i myself have the tradition of being from a kohen lineage which means that my father and his father and his father's father father all have the tradition of being priests it's so interesting because i'm kind of like i guess you only know that through someone telling you right like um yes your father has to tell you because I always wondered, like, um, I don't want to downplay the importance of the Kohenim, but I'm like, imagine, you know, I was from a Polish shtetl and I went to Belarus and nobody knows me. Maybe I'd be like, I'm a Kohen. <laughs> I get to go first, okay? <laughs> like, yeah. Do you think people ever did that in the passage of time? I was just wondered, like, oh, so everyone was able to trace it? Like, maybe a few people, you know. There is some trust that's happening. And like the go first that Paul is referring to is that in many communities, the person that gets the, gets called up to the Torah first is of a priestly lineage. Uh, so there's like extra honor given to those people. Yeah, yeah, I guess if you wanted to pass yourself off as a Kohen and nobody knew, maybe you could. You, you said something very interesting about this. I want to say maybe 10 years ago. So I don't know if you remember saying this. But you know, what are some of the things, what are like a few of the people that Cohen's traditionally can't marry? Uh, I can think of just two groups, but maybe there's more. Uh, divorcees or converts. And you had some interesting rationale. Uh, and maybe you've changed them then. I remember this was back in our base days. Base was a, mm -hmm. uh, Beit Midrash were part of, which I just found out from Canadian Jewish News is now also the name of like these micro-Jewish communities through Hillel, uh -huh. not Hillel, 
once your house. Um, right. So base lives on, but not that base. This is a different base. Uh, I was one of the organizers of this big new trash. As was Aaron. And Aaron, I guess you're continuing to be an organizer of it because there's been a new iteration of it in recent years. Um, what was your theory now, and maybe you remember then, of why Koanim couldn't marry converts? Yeah, I think I was probably saying something along the lines of Koanim represents this aspect of Judaism that's very, like, bloodline-based. That it's all about, like, you're born into this thing, and that's, like, the identity piece of having this bloodline lineage. And converts represent another pole of Jewish experience of choosing, uh, right, being a Jew by choice. And it's not about, it's not at all about bloodline. It's like all about like choosing and saying, yes, I want this. Uh, and just because those are two like different poles of ways to be Jewish, like bringing them together is like too, too charged that it's uh, discouraged. Yeah, it's so interesting too, because if I recall that in traditional communities, um, if a uh, Cohen does want to marry a convert or divorcee, do they do this thing? Correct. Maybe this was a fever dream, but is there some sort of ritual where they're like, "Oh, well, let's make sure you're a Cohen," and they look it up, like, "Oh, we're not sure. Maybe you weren't a Cohen," and that's how they get around, like letting them marry one of those people, like groups of people. Yeah, I think that's possible, or can. Like, I think it's not uh, explicitly stated or done publicly like that, but there might be an interest in trying to, like, undermine one's kihuna or, like, priestly uh, affiliation if that person is going to... It's if they're inevitably going to marry this person who's not someone who a Kohen is supposed to marry. I just find it so interesting because it's also this kind of ongoing dance and tension where like, I know some people think of Judaism as kind of very strictly kind of a bloodline ethno-religious group. And there are other people who are like, no, like obviously people have joined the Jewish people over the years, but then, you know, there's this kind of one particular group within the group where the kind of bloodline pieces still seems to have some importance in some traditional communities. So uh, yeah, just kind of that push and pull and that give and take of, um, bloodline versus kind of uh, porous acceptance, which I always find really interesting. You know, like I think Judaism is more porous than people think. Because uh, I remember we had this one friend where uh, I didn't know he was saying this as a joke, but he was. I remember he said once, like, it's so funny how Jewish people look like all the people they live amongst. Um, I thought he meant that very earnestly, kind of like it's just a coincidence. But what he was saying was like people obviously have over millennia converted to Judaism. It's just not super stated so much so that if you convert your name is son of Abraham and daughter of Sarah, which aren't that uncommon names. So if someone said your name at synagogue, maybe they would know you could they'd be like, Oh, like, I, who knows? You know, it's kind of hides the fact. Um, so I just always kind of um, found that interesting. And just, uh, do you have any other kind of thoughts on this passage or kind of the threads we've woven? Because I'm starting to see a few themes kind of like from our eternal flame to our eternal fire to kind of the bloodline piece, um, even kind of our tangential piece about the thing we stay strong with and choose to do as a mitzvah consistently. 
kind of yeah let's weave us and take us home paul tell, tell yeah we had a thread of threads kind of what what is continuity what continues like either through light through tradition through resource through uh, a commandment through uh kind of an ethnic ethno-religious group so i just you know this uh this passion that just kind of has made me think a lot about continuity and uh, you know its nuances and and thereof uh thereof shit you know um but yeah i think that's kind of wraps up my thoughts so um i guess this has been another successful lp partial podcast as always i am paul Saleka, and as always i'm aaron rotenberg have a great week friends Thank you.